for us to get a full picture of our gospel this morning and for a fuller understanding, it's necessary for us to go back to the beginning of this passage that we heard last week in last week's gospel. So we're in Luke chapter four and we begin at verse 16. Remember that Nazareth is the hometown of Jesus and Nazareth being the hometown of Jesus. Everybody knows who he is. They believe that Nazareth at the time that Jesus would have been there or would have been born there, would have kind of been raised there, was about a hundred people. And so being only a hundred people, everybody knew everybody's business. They knew that Jesus was the son of Joseph, that he was the son of Mary, and that who is he to have all of these special powers? But they've, all, they've also now heard that he's working these, these, uh, these miracles outside of Nazareth. And so in today's gospel, we hear how they're asking him to do the same thing. Well, if you perform these miracles outside of Nazareth, kind of outside of the promised land, outside of outside of the, your normal territory, why don't you work them here? But first, let's go back to last week and go back to the first the first part, beginning at ver- chapter four, verse 16 in the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Remember from last week that he's invited into the synagogue. So he's the hometown boy, kind of the loved, uh, the beloved. He's, he's been heard about in Nazareth, all the things that he's doing. And so now that he's going to his hometown, they tell him, why don't, why don't you? They kind of invite him, why don't you read from the, read from the scroll? Why don't you give us a homily today on this scripture passage? And so he kind of takes the scroll. He finds the one that he wants. It's Isaiah 61. And he reads, remember what he reads last week, or that we heard last week. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he rolls the scroll up, sets it down. He goes and sits in the chair. And that's where our gospel begins today. Because he says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, why is it significant that he says this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? What is Isaiah 61 telling us? What is he reading from? Why does he read from Isaiah 61? Isaiah 61 is kind of a paraphrase of an older scripture passage, actually all the way back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus is the book of the law for the priests and the way in which the priests are meant to live out their priesthood. So it teaches them about the sacrifices that they are to offer. It teaches them about how to perform the sacrifices. It teaches them how to live the life of the faithful Jews and the way in which it is to be lived. And so Leviticus 25 very explicitly lays out the law about what the Jubilee year is supposed to look like. And so what's a Jubilee year? Well, in, in the, in the law of, for the Israelites, seven, uh, after 49 years, seven years of seven years, after 49 years in the 50th year, the Israelites were meant to have this Jubilee year. In this 50th year, in this Jubilee year, what was supposed to happen is that they were supposed to allow the land to rest. They weren't to work the land. The year prior and the year after, they were to produce double the amount of crops and double the amount of fruit so that they could eat during that year and after that year that they wouldn't be able to produce anything as they let the land rest. 
any of the land that had been taken as a debt, any of the land that had been lost in a, in a business deal of some sort, was to be returned to the original family's owners. And so anyone that had lost land was to be given their land back. Anyone who had a debt, that debt was to completely be forgiven, meaning they wouldn't have to pay any of it back. Anybody that had a debt and had basically given their son themselves over into slavery and to the people whose debt that they were, they were to be set free. All of the slaves were to be set free. And so it was basically the, this year in which they were able to go back to the original way in which God intended for all of Israel to live. Anybody that had gained land, remember that, remember the promised land was divided into 12 different partitions where each of the tribes of Israel had a portion of the land in which they could live and in which they were to uh, produce their fruit, produce their crops, produce their animals, and then be able to trade with one another, be able to be able to make a living. And so if they lost the land in their family, they were unable to make a living anymore. Not only did they lose that land and not able to make a living, but it was a sign of, of exile, in a sense, to lose the land. Because this land that they had been given was promised to them by God, and remaining in the land and holding on to this land was a sign of the covenant that God had made to them. And so whenever even a family was to lose the land, they were, in a sense, living a sort of exile from what God had given them. And so this jubilee year was to be a year of forgiveness of basically everything. And kind of was this ability for them to be able to come back to the promises that God had made them, to live in the covenant with God once again. This jubilee year is extremely significant. It kind of brings everybody back to the same level so that they all can live in brotherhood once again. And so what Jesus is proclaiming is that he is the Jubilee year. It is through him that the land that was lost is to be returned. Now, of course, he isn't. Now, all of the Jews that he is speaking to, of course, and, and the understanding of this passage for all of the Jews was to understand the promised land and the physical material land that they had been given by God. That's the way that they would have interpreted this. But when Jesus says this is fulfilled in your midst, what he is saying to them is that the land that you lost by sin, what is that land that is lost by sin? Heaven is lost by sin, is being returned to you. And so we have this understanding as Christians, as Catholics, that at the moment of Jesus' death, that the gates of heaven are open and that we can once again return to that land or go to that land that God has promised to us. And so Jesus is saying that this is not for the material world, but this is fulfilled in me in an even greater way, an even more important way is this being fulfilled. Because you have been living in exile since the sin of Adam and Eve, which closed off the gates of heaven. And now I am ushering in this jubilee, this ability to come back to the land. And not only is he saying that you are coming back to the land, but I am forgiving your debts. It is through me that your debt will be forgiven. Any debt that has been incurred because of sin will be forgiven. He's saying that you have been caught up into captivity because of your sin. You have been in slavery because of your sin. But it is through me 
that you will be set free. This is what he is proclaiming by saying, this is fulfilled in your midst. He is proclaiming freedom. And that freedom is extended to all of us by our relationship with Jesus and in relationship with the church and the way that we receive the sacraments and enter into that freedom that God has given to us. A freedom that allows us to be who we are truly meant to be. No matter what kind of poverty we are in, no matter what kind of debt, physical debt, material debt that we are in, God is promising us liberty. He is promising us, promising us freedom to be set free from the chains of sin, to be set free from that slavery that we find ourselves in through sin. And it isn't this that is townspeople, that is hometown has a problem with. It's not this proclamation that they have a problem with. What do they have a problem with? Because it's after this, in today's gospel, that we hear them say, will you work the wonders for us that you worked in Capernaum? In this other town that is not ours, but you've come back to your hometown, so now will you work these wonders here? And what does Jesus say to them? If we have ears to hear, we begin to understand. That's why it's important for us to read the scriptures, to understand the stories of the Bible, to understand who these characters are. Who is Elijah? Who is Elisha? What are these stories he's referencing? We go back to the first book of Kings. I believe it's first book uh, of Kings 17 for, for Elijah. I believe it's first book of Kings 27 for Elisha. And so Jesus is referencing this story in which Elijah, who is the prophet in Israel, the king of Israel is a, has, has fallen into sin. He's married Jezebel. Jezebel, because he has married Jezebel, Jezebel has brought in all of these false prophets, these prophets who offer sacrifice to all of the false gods, all of the things that God told the Israelites they aren't supposed to do. Jezebel has now brought them in. Jezebel is actually seeking the life of Elijah. And so Elijah runs for his life. He goes to Zarephath. He finds this widow whom he asks for her to provide for him for an entire year. And remember that story. We had this story actually uh, last this past summer, when I, shortly after I got here. The story of when the, oil, the jar of oil never runs dry and the bin of flour never goes empty. And for an entire year, Elijah, the widow, and the child are fed. Miraculously. And so Jesus is saying, were there no widows in all of Israel in which Elijah could go and find refuge? What he's saying is that all of Israel was so unfaithful, had fallen so far away from God, that God couldn't work his miracles in Israel at the time of Elijah. And what is he saying about Elijah or Elisha? Remember Elisha, this Syrian, a non-Israelite, who is the leader of Syria, Syria, Naaman, comes to Elisha and says, I hear you perform good works. I hear you perform miracles. Can you heal me of this leprosy that I have? That I have? And Elisha tells him to go and bathe in the waters of the Jordan seven times. 
And at first, Naaman says, isn't our waters in Syria better than the waters of the Jordan? But eventually, Naaman is convinced. He goes, he bathes, he's, he's healed. And Jesus says, was there no lepers in Israel that Elisha could have healed? But he's saying, all of Israel was so unfaithful in the time of Elisha that God couldn't work his miracles because they had no faith. Jesus is comparing the unfaithfulness of the Israelites in the time of Elijah and Elisha to the unfaithfulness of the, of the people in Nazareth when Jesus is there. That's why they are angry. That's why they want to put Jesus to death. He is calling them unfaithful. He's calling them, he's telling them that they are, that they are no better than the Israelites from of old in which they have turned against God and they have followed their own ways and they're worshiping false gods. Whatever those gods are, we don't know. Maybe it's just their own materialism in which they are following. And so because of their unfaithfulness, Jesus is unable to perform miracles in Nazareth in his hometown. And so what do they want to do? They take him out to the city gates, to the brow of the hill in which they want to throw him off the hill to kill him. And Jesus gets away. It is not his hour to die yet. So what is what are we to grasp from this today? What are we to grasp from this gospel today? When we begin to progress in our spiritual life, when we begin to progress in our in our religion in our in our spirituality and in our religious life, in our relationship with the church, what begins to happen is we begin to see those around us whom we've kind of associated with who are not living in the same way. And when we begin to grow closer to God, what happens is they begin to look at us and they begin to say, who does he think he is? Who does she think she is that she thinks she's better than us now that now that she's found God? Now that he has found God. And so they and their that life that we begin to live that is kind of uh, closer to Jesus begins to be an examination of their life. And they don't like that examination that they have to do in their life because of the witness that we give. And so what they want to do is they want to drag us back down, back to their level, so that we no longer live in the way that God is calling us to live, so that we are pulled back down to that level and are pulled back down to live in that mediocrity that we have always been living and that they are living as well. And when we live in a community, especially a small community, when we live around the same people that we've lived around for a good portion of our life, it's easy to get pulled down into that. And it's hard and difficult for us to break out of that, to advance in our spiritual life. And so we have to look at our life and we have to say, what is God actually calling me to? And is there anything that is holding me back from fulfilling what God wants me to fulfill? God is calling me to this tremendous freedom and this jubilee that he has established for me in which he is fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, setting us free from our sin, providing us with this land in heaven that we that he so graciously gives to us. What is preventing me from seeking that to the fullest to my fullest ability? Is it material things? 
Is it the people that I associate with? Are those people holding me back? Are these material things holding me back? What is keeping me from that true freedom that God wants to give? This gospel is an examination of our life. It's an examination of the love to which we are called that St. Paul talks about in our second reading from Corinthians today. And we see Jeremiah in our first reading as well, who is called by God to prophesy to the people, and yet they put him to death because of the message that he brings and the, and the repentance that he calls them to. Our life lived fully in God, lived truly in the love that God is calling us to, just by living out that love, is an examination for those around us. And they will persecute us. They may even want to put us to death. They may wish harm upon us. They may speak ill of us to others. We may be, they may detract us. They may preach slander against us. But we still are called to serve Christ and Him alone and to live in that freedom that He has given to us. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, to live in that freedom, to live in that jubilee that God has established for us. And to live it well, but also to know that you will be persecuted for it. You will be drugged back into a mediocre, mediocre life. God is calling you to greatness. He's calling you to heaven. Live that and live it well.